There we go. There we go. I think it was the black lights up here that drained my battery so quickly. Whatever it was. Good to be with you this morning. Good to sing with you this morning. Take your Bibles back out. Pastor Jonathan read for us uh, the sermon text for this morning, which is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses uh, 12 through chapter 2, verse 4. And uh, if you have your Bibles open and ready, you'll be uh, uh, prepared for this part of our time together. Let's uh, look to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive into our message for this morning. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, it has been truly a delight of ours to gather together this morning to sing to sing to you and to hear songs sung to you that recount to you your, gratefulness, your, your greatness, your faithfulness, and your goodness, and what you have done for us in and through the, uh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And uh, now we uh, turn our eyes to the pages of Scripture, and we have them open here, and in a moment we're going to read them. We pray that you would teach us truth. We pray that you continue to use your word to work in our lives all that is necessary for your glory and for our good. And uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're, uh, we're week number three in a sermon series through the book of 2 Corinthians, and I think we've got about 17 more weeks to go. But uh, last week, if you want to look back at chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, uh, last week we looked at a very familiar portion of the letter. It's one of the more familiar portions of the letter because it's one of the most favorite portions of the book. And that's interesting how that works. We have favorite portions of the Bible. You know that, right? We have favorite portions of the Bible, passages of Scripture that we like better than other passages. And if we're not careful, we can overemphasize our favorite passages and overlook our non-favorite passages and develop a very lopsided theology that doesn't serve us very well as people who seek to flourish, seek to flourish as God's people. If we're not careful, we can easily develop a Bible that we like out of the Bible that actually is. And in doing that, we'd be no different than Thomas Jefferson, who literally took his Bible and cut and pasted it together and formed a Bible of his own liking, which is a dangerous thing to do. Here at Emmanuel Bible Church, there's a reason why we preach through the Bible the way we do. We preach through whole books, preaching from start to finish. We don't want to just look at our favorite passages. We want to uh, look at all of the Scripture because we believe that all Scripture is profitable. All Scripture is profitable, and we desire to have a growing knowledge of all that God has revealed uh, to, of, to us of himself so that we might be mature and complete as God's people, not lacking in knowledge and not lacking in character development. We want to be educated by the Scripture and equipped for every good work, so we plan to press into all that God has revealed to us by preaching through the entirety of the text. Needless to say, the passage that's before us this morning, uh, chapter 1, verse 12 through 2, 4, is not one of those familiar passages. And maybe you noticed that this past week. It's not one of the more familiar passages because it's not one of our favorite passages. So let's begin by uh, pressing into what we looked at last week just briefly by way of review that gets our mind engaged, and then we'll press into uh, the text for us this morning. Last week, we looked at verses 3 through 11 of chapter 1. We were encouraged we are encouraged with the reminder that God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And we love that, and we're grateful for that, and it's true. God permits afflictions. In this fallen, broken world in which we live, God permits afflictions, but God, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, He provides comfort. And the comfort that God provides matches and is more than what is needed for our particular trial. We are comforted by God in abundant ways so that we might comfort one another. God's comfort flows into our life and flows between us, between God's people. God's people are often the mediators or the distributors of God's comfort, making the comfort of God personal. 
and embodied, real and tangible, not spiritual and isolated. Uh, God's comfort that we receive is not just something that we feel or something that we think, it is actually something that we experience between us. At this last uh, Friday morning at the sermon-based discussion group that happens here early on Friday morning at 6 a.m., I was, uh, I was reminded, graciously reminded, that it takes humility. It takes humility to express our suffering. It takes humility to express our need and our suffering. And then it takes humility on the part of those who want to provide comfort because they often don't know what to do. We see someone who is suffering, we don't know what to say. And we don't know what to do. And it, it, it's a humility on our part to say, God, like, I, I don't know what to do here. And in that context of mutual dependence upon God and mutual humility, people who are needing comfort and people who give comfort are depending upon God who gives comfort. And when God gives the comfort, God is glorified. And God is thanked. And no one in the process is belittled because the comfort is coming from the Lord. From last Sunday's text, we also learned that even when we are pressed beyond our ability to endure, we are graced with the lesson of learning to rely not on ourselves, but on God who accomplishes the impossible. After all, as the text reminds us, God raises the dead. So even in our overwhelming burdens, that results in a victorious overcoming faith in God because we know that God delivers his people and he will deliver his people. And we are invited into what God is doing by sharing comfort that he gives us, but also praying for one another. And as we pray for one another, prayer helps in ways that we can see, and prayer helps in ways that we cannot be, begin to comprehend. So we're familiar with that. That was a great encouragement to us last week. Some of you are like, you know, that took you three minutes to do all of last week's sermon in a summary. Why couldn't you just do that last Sunday morning? It took you 40 minutes. Well, I'm slow, and we're moving through the text slowly because you asked me to. But last week's message is, a, is an encouraging message we like to receive. God has comfort. He has comfort that is more than sufficient for our trials. And it is experienced and shared in the community of God's people. Praise be to God. So last week's message, God, God comforts his people. God, God's people comfort one another. This week's message, which is less familiar to us because it's not one of our favorite portions, is God's people not only comfort one another, but God's people grieve one another. God's people pain one another. God's people hurt one another. It's not as though it's a New Testament imperative. It's not as though it's a command, but it is a New Testament reality. We see it throughout the pages of Scripture, and we certainly see it in our life. Uh, you might see it in the scripture with uh, Paul writing to the church in Philippi saying, hey, have Yodia and Synthesy get along with one another. Or we'll see that in John's letters where there's a, a conflict between Gaius and Demetrius. And in this letter, you discover as you read through the letter that there's a serious conflict that has happened between Paul, the founding pastor of the Corinthian church, and the Corinthian church. Uh, God's people comfort one another and God's people grieve one another. And God uses both experiences in the refining and maturing process of his people. And so if you can take the comfort, but you can't take the pain, you probably won't persevere in faith. You will probably bail out on God and God's people, and you'll deceive yourself thinking that you can bail out on God's people by not bailing out on God. You can remain true to God, but bail out on God's people. And God identifies with his people. And God's people identify with him. 
God's people comfort one another and God's people hurt one another. And in the process, we grow. We grow in faith and we grow in grace and we grow in obedience. So if you're here this morning and you think your identification with Jesus and your association with God's people is gonna be all comfort and no pain, you are a prime candidate for serious disillusionment. What if your greatest experiences of pain come from those people who are supposed to be your greatest source of comfort? What are you gonna do then? And I can almost assuredly tell you that it's going to happen. Have you ever met a Christian who hasn't been deeply hurt by another Christian? That's a great way to start a message, isn't it? Can you tell this is why this is one of our favorite passages? We love the God of mercies and the God of all comfort, and we get to comfort one another, and God's comfort flows into our life and flows into Yeah, we comfort one another, and we hurt one another. So you might as well take a look around you and say, these people are really going to comfort me, and these people are really going to hurt me. How do you like that? If you really want to experience pain, join the church. <laughs> this is a great message. Some of you are like leaning in, wondering where I'm going to go with this. If you really want to experience pain, well, identify with Jesus and associate with God's people because as you come into the church, you'll be put into a relational context where you'll experience both comfort and pain. Christian people hurt one another. Why? Why does that happen? We don't intend to hurt one another. We don't mean to, but it happens, and we know it does. We know it from the pages of Scripture. We know it by personal experience. Why do Christian people hurt one another? Because sin makes us treat one another badly. And we are saints who are still putting off sin, and we're learning Christ together. And in the process, we hurt one another. In the Scripture, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, he calls himself the chief of sinners, before he was introduced to Jesus, he was the chief of sinners. That's how he self-identified. But through faith in Jesus, he had become a saint. And he was learning to put off sin, and by faith he was learning to put on Christ, and he was learning to live up to the calling he'd received by grace. So positionally, Paul was perfect, but practically that was being worked out in his life. Christians, when they read that passage of Scripture and they read about Paul self-identifying as the chief of sinners, they often relate that to themselves. And they say, well, Paul was the chief of sinners, but really, I was the chief of sinners. I know my heart, I know my life, I know my experiences, and, and I would be the chief of sinners. Now, isn't it interesting that we expect the church, the gathering of God's people, to be a perfect experience of really good people when every member of the church identifies themselves as the historic chief of sinners? What should we expect when the post-sinful chiefs gather together? Oh, come on, don't be quiet on me. What should we expect when the past sinful chiefs gather together? It's like a bad moss bob, moss, uh, uh, mob boss meeting. All the really bad guys get together. What should we expect when all the past sinful chiefs gather together? We should expect saints who are putting off sin and putting on Christ and learning Christ together, painting one another in the growing process. We understand our own imperfections. We understand our own struggle with sin. 
We understand our own need of growth and change and maturity, but somehow we strangely expect that the church corporately is going to be somehow different, and it's going to be a perfect experience with no relational conflict because everyone else is broken, or no, because I'm broken, everyone else is perfect. It's quite an interesting thought. Well, uh, we haven't looked at the scripture yet. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Paul, who wrote to the Corinthians and in the prior paragraphs, encouraged them with the reality of the comfort they share with one another. He also writes to them, and in chapter 2, verse 1 says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. What does that tell you? It tells us the prior visit was painful. The prior visit wasn't positive encouraging. It was sharing in difficulty and hardship, and it was painful. There was relational pain between them. The visit, prior visit was marked with conflict and relational stress and difficulty. And we're going to discover here that Paul is actually changing his travel plans, which he's done multiple times over. He's already on like travel plan C. You know, he went there and he was with them for like 18 months and he planted and established the church and then he left them and then he heard there was difficulties there and so he had to go back and make an emergency visit and then he wrote them at different times and so there's a lot of action going back between them. At one point he said, you know, I'm going to come to you guys first and go back to you second and sometimes he said, I'm going to stay there an extended period of time. Well, he's, he's changing his travel plans. Why is he doing that? Well, he doesn't want to make another painful visit. And he's writing them this letter, and he's hoping that the letter would be beneficial toward resolving the pain that was shared between them so that the next visit would be better than the last one. Well, let's, let's look at verses 1 through 4. He's going to mention pain five times in four verses. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I caused you pain, who is there to make me glad but the ones who I have pained? And I wrote you as I did so that I might not suffer pain from you, from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. That grabbed me this morning. It didn't grab me earlier in the week. But as I'm reading that, you know, when we picture the Apostle Paul, it's almost difficult for me to imagine Paul in tears. He's a type A, hard-charging leader who would, so, who would separate from John Mark because John Mark was slowing down the ministry. <laughs> and here he's writing to this church that he's planted, and he said, I, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. You guys are bringing me to tears. I wrote you not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. The prior visit that Paul had with the Corinthian church that he planted, it was painful. The letter was an exercise of love. Paul deeply loved these people, but he had been deeply hurt by them. And they had been deeply hurt by him. And there was anguish and tears and heartache. And again, the hope is that the conflict would be resolved, even by their response to this letter and other visits that Timothy made and Silas made. He was hoping that the conflict would resolve so that the future visit down the road would be better than the last one. And the future visit would be marked with restoration, comfort, and joy. All right, with that in mind, uh, think with me for a moment. When it, comes, uh, when it comes to bedtime at your house, those of you who particularly have little kids, little children, when it comes to bedtime and you're telling all the kids to put away their toys because you're going to get ready for bed, and so all the kids put all the toys away, and as they put all the toys away, there's a, a singular Lego piece that gets left out of the box and missed and left out in the middle of the floor. And then later that night, after all the kids are in bed, you walk through that room with your bare feet and you step on that Lego. What happens? 
intense pain happens. And the intense pain moves you toward quick, positive action. You do what you can to ease the pain in the sole of your feet. It looks like a strange one-footed Indian dance in the middle of the room for a while. But you seek to ease the pain, and then you immediately put that Lego away in its proper place so it doesn't happen to someone else. Pain has a way of narrowing our focus. And pain has a way of moving us toward correction and prevention. When a person in the Christian community sins, and that sin negatively impacts relationships, which sin does, where should our focus immediately turn? See, pain narrows our focus. And when someone in the Christian community sins, where should our focus immediately turn for comfort, for ease, for relief? Let's get more specific, a situation we're all familiar with. Let's imagine a spiritual leader, a mentor, a pastor, falls into gross immorality, and it's a heartache to the people who have appreciated and benefited from his ministry. That leader's family is crushed. The church is devastated. A leader has fallen. The unbelieving community on the outside loves to use that known failure as evidence for their ongoing unbelief. It's just an ugly, bad, terrible situation. And let's imagine in that context, a member of the Christian community comes to you completely disillusioned. And they're in tears. And they've been hurt. And they've been betrayed. And they come to you with their questions. What do you say to them? What do you tell them? Where should the focus be turned? I've been there and I've helped people in these situations. And when people come to me and they've been deeply hurt by another Christian and they ask their questions, I frequently begin by asking them the question, tell me, did Jesus die on the cross? Did he die on the cross for your sin? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Did that really happen in time and space on this planet? Did Jesus, who died for sin, rise from the dead? Is all the promises of God yes in Jesus Christ? You, you, you see what's immediately needed in the context of unfaithfulness is a solid foundation of faithfulness and God is faithful. And Jesus is faithful. And all of God's promises are yes in Jesus Christ. They are sure and unchanging. Someone else's unfaithfulness does not change God's faithfulness and God's faithfulness should be the immediate focus. I know that doesn't resolve the problem. I know that isn't a step toward correction and prevention, but it is a solid foundation from which to begin. Did Jesus really die? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did Jesus really provide for your salvation? Are all of God's promises yes in Jesus? Let's, let's start there. As it relates to Paul and the Corinthians and this letter that we're reading, the Apostle Paul had not failed in his leadership. He had conducted himself with integrity and godly sincerity, but there was a minority group within the church who were claiming that Paul was a no-good leader. He wasn't reliable. He couldn't be trusted. He was motivated by selfish ambition. They were seeking to undermine Paul's ministry by discrediting his character, questioning his motives, sowing distrust in his leadership. 
And they were even using his change of travel plans as evidence against him. You see, Paul changes his mind all the time. He's not a reliable leader. I think he's been lying to us. You can't trust what he's saying. Paul hadn't failed. He wasn't being unfaithful. But there was a group within the church that were accusing him of being disqualified. And as you might imagine, that was causing conflict. Conflict between Paul and that group who were discrediting him. Conflict within the church between that minority group and the majority group who had really benefited from Paul's ministry. This was an ugly situation. And it's happening in the church. This isn't persecution from the outside. This is pain from inside. As Paul gives the rationale for his change of travel plans, he actually focuses them where the focus needs to be. And where does the focus need to be? On the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Look with me back at verse 15 of chapter 1. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. We might be blessed again by seeing one another. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. That was the plan. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? Ready to say yes and no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silas and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who established us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us, giving us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. I call God to the witness stand against me. It was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in the faith. Paul did change his plans. And Paul did change his agenda, but he wasn't being unfaithful. He wasn't being untrue. There were circumstantial reasons for his change of plans. He was actually thinking of them, not himself. He knew that if he came back early, it would be another painful visit. So he's writing them a letter and he's giving them time to respond so that a future visit would be more beneficial. But in all of this misunderstanding and in this conflict between Paul and the Corinthian church, there is a bigger foundation that serves them both well, both Paul and the church. And that bigger foundation is the faithfulness of God and their unity with God through Jesus Christ. God had promised Jesus and all the promises of God find their resounding yes in Jesus Christ. So you think through all the promises that God made concerning Jesus Christ, promises that God made to Adam. Yes. Promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah. Yes. Promises that God made to Joshua and to Samuel and to David and to Isaiah and to Malachi. All of God's promises are yes in Jesus Christ. He's faithful. He keeps them all. And Jesus has fulfilled those promises. Is God for you? Yes. Will God have you? Yes. Has Christ died for you? Yes. All of the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. Jesus is not the world's greatest maybe. He's yes. And Paul reminds these people 
of their relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. They have been established together in Christ. They have been anointed, sealed, and guaranteed by God's Spirit. And together they give their amen to the glory of God for saving them in Jesus Christ. So in the context of their conflict, which is real and hasn't gone away, but in the context of their conflict... Paul justifies his changing plans by telling them what he did and why he did it, but more importantly, he focuses them on the faithfulness of God and the centrality of Jesus in fulfilling all of God's promises. That's a foundation to work from. That's where the focus immediately needs to be. They had historic, hurtful experiences between them, but they were one in the Spirit, and they were one in Christ, and they belonged together, they belonged to God, and it was God's faithfulness that had brought that about. That's why in the preceding paragraph, Paul could boast about them and boast about the integrity of his ministry. He wasn't being boastful by what he did and what they did. He was being boastful by what God did through him to them and how they responded to God, which is an evidence of God's faithfulness to them. He could boast of them. I'm working backwards through the text. I hope you see that. Look at verse 12. This is where he begins. Verse 12, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us, and we will boast of you. That's another great focus not only on the faithfulness of God and Jesus fulfilling all the promises of God and being yes, but on the return of Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus Christ returns, we will stand before him and Paul says, I will boast of you because of the work that God did in and through you. And I will boast about the integrity of my ministry because I did my ministry based on the faithfulness of God, which was grace to me and God. Remarkable. So here's the message. My time is almost spent. Here's the message. Christians comfort one another. That was the opening paragraphs of the letter. God comforts his people. He comforts his people as Christians share that comfort that they receive and they comfort one another. The second part of the letter, so far just in the introduction, is Christians grieve one another. They hurt one another. They grieve and hurt one another because they're saints who are putting off sin and learning Christ and they're doing life in community and that shows up and Christians hurt one another. Pain narrows our focus. When you're pained by another Christian, you can focus on yourself and you can focus on the pain, but that won't play out very well. You'll find yourself isolating and diminishing. You can focus on yourself or you can focus on the faithfulness of God and the great and precious promises of God that he has made and have been fulfilled in Jesus. And when you do that, you'll find yourself leaning in and learning and growing, forgiving bearing with one another, persevering with one another, you'll find yourself growing in godliness. Who's the most forgiving person you could ever meet? God is the most forgiving person you'd ever meet. He's forgiven the sins of the world through Jesus Christ. How are you gonna grow in forgiveness? You're gonna grow in forgiveness when people offend you and hurt you. And you're gonna learn what to do with that sin and how to handle that sin and how to respond to that sin. And as you lean in, and lean in on the grace of God and remember the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, you're going to end up growing together. So Christians comfort one another. Christians grieve one another. Pain narrows our focus. Our focus ought to be on the faithfulness of God and the promises of Jesus Christ. On that focus, 
Paul has built his ministry, which has resulted in integrity and godly sincerity, which has benefited both himself and the Corinthians. Now, the question can be raised. What do you do with a person who's causing pain? We know that the right focus is on God's faithfulness and his promises, but what about the correction and the prevention? You know, you're walking across that living room floor and you step on the Lego and, it, and, you, and you ease the pain, but you put away the Lego so someone else doesn't experience it. Is there any responsibility the church has toward the person who is causing pain? What do you do with that person? Well, that's where we go next week. Because we're moving slow through this passage, I, I can't really tackle it till next Sunday morning. <laughs> next Sunday, you're going to read uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It's just a short paragraph. It addresses the person who's causing pain. Because there's someone in that church in Corinth who's leading a minority group against Paul and discrediting Paul and throwing Paul under the bus. And, um, and, and Paul has to address that. And the church has to address that. So, so what steps are taken toward the, the person who is causing pain? We'll go there next week. This morning, we'll just rest on the fact that when we hurt one another, the immediate focus is God is faithful. God has made promises and he's kept all of them. We, we, we are unfaithful at times and sinful and we hurt one another. We, we need to focus on the faithfulness of God and the, and the centrality of Jesus Christ and the fact that we've been baptized by his spirit into one body. We belong to God. We belong to one another. We begin there, but then we move from that foundation in making corrections and preventions. Let me, let me close in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, your word is so practical and helpful and beneficial as it teaches us about yourself and all that you've done for us in and through Jesus Christ. We were sinners and cut off from you. We had cut ourselves off from you from our sin and our rebellion, but you loved us and you set your affection upon us and you have forgiven us our sins through Jesus Christ. Justice has been satisfied. Our sins have been paid for. And through faith in Jesus Christ, we're joined with you and joined to one another. And your scripture teaches us not only all that you've done for us through Christ, but through the scripture we learn and we grow and we renew our minds and we change our behaviors. And we begin to put off sin and put on Christ and we encourage and comfort one another and we help one another. Father, we thank you that you use all experiences for the good of your children to mature them in faith, that they might be mature and complete, equipped for every good work. Continue to use your word in our lives for that, to that end. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.